0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister's 20 seconds of silence. Did he get his message across, or are we now all just confused as to what he was trying to say? Both TELUS and Bell have said no to letting Huawei into their 5G networks. Ahead of the Prime Minister, does he now need to make a decision when business has already done it? And a four day work week. How does that sound? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Some distractions at home today. You know, you've seen it all the pets, the people walking by, the whatever. Uh, So if you hear any yelling and screaming in the background, you know it's just the Thompson household on a Wednesday. Uh, Feel free to jump into the conversation and drown some of this out. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us a note. (laughs) All right, that's Will. That's not me. That was Will back at the station. However, it may have been my dog, though. I don't know. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Send me a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, interesting. Today, uh, no press conference from the uh, Prime Minister. normally has them at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, no press conference today because uh, he's involved with a series of meetings, uh, heads of state, Uh, for those from the the Caribbean and Africa and such, also in a series of meetings in regard to COVID-19 and how to handle the uh, pandemic and such. So no uh, daily press conference today from the prime minister, uh, which is odd because um, what happened yesterday has certainly raised a lot of questions when asked, uh, the prime minister was, and was asked in a very unusual way. In other words, should you just remain silent? Um, but basically asked about uh, the response to U.S. President, uh, the response U.S. President uh, Donald Trump has, uh, has shown uh, in regard to the death of uh, George Floyd and the protests and the demonstrations that have been going on uh, since all of that, uh, which, of course, the president has basically uh, been doubling down. Uh, And he chose to uh, pause for, I guess, was about 23 seconds. Those of us in the media thought that our devices had died or something had happened because it was a very crucial answer that we were about to hear. And, of course, we didn't hear anything. Um, And what's odd about this is uh, by not addressing the question, it's just amplified the situation and drawn more attention to it and then not having a press conference the next day. Uh, People are going to be asking this question first thing tomorrow. What was it all about? What were you saying? And again, whether it was intentional, uh, whether it was just a miscue of some sort, um, at the end of the day, the message is the same. We don't know. We don't know what an answer is, what his answer is. So uh, rather than leaving it to the rest of the world to try to figure out, Uh, and it is uh, getting world attention uh, rather than uh, leaving it to the rest of the world to try to figure out what he was trying to say would not just a a short uh, tight concise statement uh, even if it's a generality, work uh, just as much. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's in a situation where he's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't. Let's play the clip. We're going to play, so uh, we're not going to play the the 23-second gap, but obviously he was asked uh, by the reporter uh, his thoughts on what the U.S. Uh, president was doing, and he paused for about 23 seconds or so. Uh, it didn't really, ummed and on a bit in, this, in the center, and then gave this answer.
1: We all watch
0: in horror and consternation what's going on in the United States it is a time uh, to pull people together but it is a time to listen all right let's bring in Peter Greb, professor of political science at McMaster University he is with us now Peter thanks for taking the time hope you're doing well
2: yeah thanks
0: Peter your thoughts on uh, the silence and is it is it are we making more of the silence than we should
2: uh, yeah probably uh, you know, it's uh, in a few days it will have passed, but uh, it's certainly not a typical response from a prime minister who usually has a bromide for every situation uh, to be sort of uh, stuck in that situation of uh, not seeming to have an answer. And, uh, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think we are at the moment uh, wondering whether this was a planned attempt to try and show that he was speechless in a sense, uh, or if he was, you know, unable to really find a way of mustering the words or whether at the end of the day it was uh, yeah an incapacity to actually address the question which was a which was a complicated one i guess for the prime minister because the sort of part b of it was well if you don't have an answer what does that say or if you don't have something to say about what's happening in the united states uh, you know what does that uh, unwillingness to say anything have to tell us and so uh, you know that that was also put to the fore
0: so what are your thoughts did w- w- was that a planned response or uh, was he thinking about what he was going to say
3: uh, I would
2: uh, guess that he was thinking about what he was trying to say. I don't think he had foreseen the second part of the, the question coming, which would be if he gave an on answer. what does that mean? Um, because in a way, uh, you know, he's stuck in a difficult situation uh, where if he chooses uh, to criticize in a very sort of over, overt manner uh, the decisions of the American president, uh, it does nothing to actually change what's happening in the United States, uh, but is likely to uh produce some kind of reaction uh from the United States and uh, you know Canada is a relatively weak player in the situation as we've seen earlier you know around the renegotiation of NAFTA so uh you know there's a desire I think on the part of the prime minister to try and get out of uh, having anything to say about it at least about the United States um, you know to, to actually be open about why he has nothing to say is in in a way an admission of Canada's weakness
0: Um, Many will say that especially during these uh, 11 a.m. news conferences that he holds That he never really listens to the question or answers the question anyway He just pulls the stock answer out that's been prepared and gives that answer Why did he not just do that here? Because he must have known he was going to be asked the question
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point Uh, I mean, I don't think he foresaw the second part of the question coming Maybe was worried that if he just gave his stock answer, which presumably is what he got to after 20 so many seconds, um, you know, he realized he would have been a bit stuck. Although, as we know, uh, politicians these days recognize that if they stick within their message box, uh, you know, most most citizens aren't really going to notice that they didn't actually answer uh, the important questions being asked them by the journalists
0: which so often happens with politicians, uh, what should he have said? What, what, even if he decided he did not want to comment, what should he have said?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I think he said what he wanted to say, and is what he should have said. It depends on what you want to see happen from the Prime Minister. I mean, in a way, it is a bromide. I mean, uh, he came out and, you know, he mentioned uh, his unhappiness with the United States later in the day, a, a kind of a big speech. Uh, about the importance of uh, dealing with questions of racism in Canada. Uh, but on the other hand, he's a prime minister, and he's been one now for uh, almost five years. <laughs> so as Canadians, we might ask, well, concretely, what have you done? Uh, and what do you think uh, has been successful in what you've done and what remains to be done? So on that, I think the prime minister, again, he sort of relies on Canadians looking at the United States and saying there's something that's not working there around uh, manner of dealing with relationships between uh the sort of the majority white population and and various minorities around questions of policing access to work whole series of forms of discrimination um... but in canada you know we might actually have some questions about what we might need to do and you know what are we trying what's working what's not working what has to be done better and again our politicians don't really want to discuss that i mean we saw that with the premier of ontario yesterday also trying to Mm -hmm. i mean in, in a similar manner trying to say well we're not the united states thank goodness Uh, let's move on. Um, But, you know, in this moment, maybe we could see this as an opportunity to to talk a bit more, frankly, uh, about a series of policies where, you know, we don't actually spend a lot of time saying, well, what actually are we doing concretely, and is it working or not?
0: How do you think the rest of the world is reacting to this? Because it seems to be playing all over the world.
2: Well, I mean, in that context, uh, Trudeau's response probably plays pretty well. I think a lot of the world is watching and is speechless. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, there's no shortage of people criticizing Donald Trump, but, I mean, kind of behind that is maybe exasperation isn't quite the right word, but, uh, you know, kind of an immense sadness, and, uh, you know, how how are these things, A, uh, you know, left to come to the fore, but then how are they dealt in a way that actually increases uh, the negative ramifications all around, as opposed to being dealt in a manner that might, uh, you know, move the American society forward? So in a situation where over the past four years, uh, a lot of people around the world have been talking about the decline of the United States, the loss of its moral authority, the loss of its capacity to be a leader on the world stage. And I think this is uh, kind of a, a significant symbolic point where a lot of people around the world are saying, well, you know, what, what what's America we're going to do? I mean, they're, they're facing this at the same point as they're a country that's had probably the least successful response to the whole COVID uh, crisis. And so there's a series of cascading difficulties on the part of the American state, and no seeming capacity uh, among its political class to get it out of them. I mean, there's criticisms of the president, but it's clear that beneath the president, there's whole swaths of uh, of politicians, uh, you know, of institutions, Congress, the courts, you know, what's happening in state houses where the the division of the the president is just being replicated, rather than people trying to find ways to deal with these situations and find solutions that would make sense
0: uh this in a sense reminds me of uh the scenarios we see after a mass shooting there's lots of uh anger lots of uh disgust lots of chatter that there's going to be change and then nothing really ever happens is it different this time peter is is do you have a different feeling from what it ha- what's happened here with the death of george floyd
2: uh well i mean uh, there have been i think some changes at the margin uh Where? I mean, it's not been complete impunity, for instance, for the police force. Uh, There have been changes in the way policing's been happening in the United States in some locales over the past four or five years as a result of Black Lives Matter and other challenges of that manner, which I think have resulted in changes. Um, But on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of political leaders who don't really seem that concerned to to change anything. They see the response as being one of bringing in the police and the national guard, and if need be, the military, uh, as as a solution. And then once that has happened, there's really no need to deal with uh, some of the other questions about, you know, why do these situations seem to recur? So, uh, you know, in some ways, that may be similar to the to questions around, uh, you know, guns in the United States and gun control after some of these mass shootings. But in some ways, there seems to be less willingness to move, at least at the apex of the American state, as opposed to simply finding a situation where you can pacify the unrest but then move on as if nothing had happened.
0: Uh, we've talked many times of uh, of how the world has become such a divisive place, and there, there, there doesn't seem to be much uh, in common in the center. It's either one extreme or the other. Um, and of course, you know discussions around the president probably not helping that. Um, do we will we see this continue to divide the United States and the rest of the world, or will this bring unification? I mean, you think you know we're going through this at the same time as a pandemic is 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 this a time to learn, or is this hell in a handbasket?
2: Well, uh, I mean, I think in the United States, that's still an open question. Um, in places like Canada, I don't know if our response has been, in some ways, to stand back and say maybe we have to do differently. Um, and so, I mean, we see today in the Ontario legislature, Doug Ford, uh, who you know yesterday was criticized for not saying, you know, for saying that we don't really have a big problem with systemic racism in Ontario, was kind of widely criticized. Kind of corrected himself today. In a sense, you know, there's, a, I think, still within the Canadian political class. You know, even in the reactions of uh, someone, uh, you know, like the conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, in these situations, there's a recognition that we want a different kind of discourse about these questions in Canada, and there's still a sense that there's problems that can be solved, and that we need to discuss what those might be. So, you know, without uh, painting, you know, too blue a picture, I think, in a number of countries, you know, the example of the United States is one that says you know, well, a politics of division, of a politics of always pushing the hot buttons, even if that's sometimes useful for certain parties to getting elected, is maybe not good for the overall uh, fabric of our political discussions, and there's a moderation. And so that may be, you know, one thing outside the United States that we'll, we'll see. Whether that happens in the states, uh, it doesn't seem to be happening this electoral cycle. I think the political parties in the states and their... The sort of media, media ecosystems around there, which kind of produce uh, you know, further radicalization in, in different directions of the American population, are in place. Again, like, the question is from this, do people step back and say, in fact, that's you know, damaging to our society. We need to, to step back and uh, find another way.
0: How do you think China is viewing this, uh, especially when the world is criticizing them over their treatment of Hong Kong?
2: Uh, well, I think they're happy to see the attention of the world look somewhere else. Uh, I think also, given their own interest in, you know, developing their role as a world power and one which has been hurt by some of the recent, uh, you know, the spread of COVID, but also the manner in which, you know, the the economic uncertainty uh, within that has led to some pretty harsh treatment of some states that owe money to, to China in various ways. Uh, you know, that's all been negative for them. But again, this takes the attention off that. And really reinforces the idea of the United States as a declining world power, not only economically, but also in in terms of its capacity to exert a moral or ideological leadership in the world. So uh, I think for many Western states, this is one of the sadnesses of what's happening in the U.S. Uh, Because it's nevertheless, you know, for all of its imperfections in achieving and modeling uh, a democratic society, it nevertheless it's a certain vision of the liberal way of life. Uh, And so with the decline of the United States, we're going to be the champions of that in a world where other superpowers uh, have more authoritarian visions of the proper
0: ordering of society. Peter Grape has been with us, Professor of Political Science McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. And you too. Let's get a bit of an update here on where we are with cases. Bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time as usual. Hope you're doing well
4: same to you scott great speaking to you
0: so the last couple of days ahmad we saw a, a, a slight spike in cases actually up over 400 i think yesterday was about 446 now we're seeing them back down below 400 uh thoughts on that and concerns
4: uh there is not as much concerns as it is the fact that we are going to continue to see this escalating and de-escalating of rates over time it's very normal for us to have sort of a up and, up and down numbers of COVID-19 cases. But now, given the protests are going around the country and, and our neighboring uh, country, the US, I think we are gonna see probably a higher number of rates of COVID-19, given that people are now more in cl- close proximity to each other. So keep an eye on the fluctuation of the numbers of COVID-19. What's gonna be really key here is the number of cases of deaths that will, uh, that will result from COVID-19.
0: Ahmad, you brought up my next question, and that is uh, obviously the protests that we're seeing going around, on around uh, this country and uh, south of the border. How concerned are you with those large groups gathering?
4: I mean, I am concerned for two reasons. I mean, obviously, the first reason is this is speaking about something that touches people's hearts and minds and, and a very important and sensitive topic that we have to be very careful with institutional racism is not a joke and something that must be dealt with so i i do understand people need to go to the street from a public health perspective there is the concern as many others have voiced too that uh, this one might ri- might lead to a rise in COVID 19 cases and the uh, the best that we could do at this point scott is to advise the public on public health measures so uh, nobody can say that you uh, should not go out to the street and protest but what we're trying to say here is uh, carry with you a hand sanitizer please wear a face mask Exercise caution the best that you can.
0: Uh, it, it seems that uh, in lots of situations, certainly in this country, we see that. We do see people that are demonstrating and, and with masks and such on. Are you concerned that there will be a spike, specifically in the United States, considering where they were prior to all of this?
4: Well, the, the early reports in the U.S. are showing that they are uh, people are testing positive or coming out of protests in some pockets throughout the U.S., that's inevitable. That's not a shock, right? You have mm-hmm. people in close proximity using their voices, air droplets. Remember that COVID-19 is transmitted through air droplets. So from one mouth to another, that comes out of your mouth, that can be transferred, that transmitted to another person, and they'll contract the virus. And so by being in close proximity, large gatherings of people in protests I mean, that is going to happen. And the best that we can do right now is try to mitigate that risk. And by that, I mean, is you know, make sure that our health services and health systems are ready for that surge if it does happen, that we continue to advise people to use masks when possible and to keep using hand sanitizer when they are in those large protests.
0: Is there a safe way to protest? Any advice there?
4: Uh, Is there a safe way? I mean, initially we were trying to say that online virtual protests is the way to go forward. But I'll be honest with you, Scott, it's very difficult to engage in that discussion right now. People are angry, people are hurt, people are... We have to be empathetic with what the pulse of the population is. I think this is also a worldwide phenomenon. This is now translating to other countries. We're seeing this is touching the hearts and minds of people, and rightly so. This is a very systemic issue that's been going on for a very long time. And people are just sick and tired and want resolution. And so it's very difficult to put on this public health lens. I mean, many are saying this is a racism pandemic in the midst of a public health pandemic, which is true. I think it's two crises that we're dealing with now. We were dealing with COVID-19 and now we have this ongoing crisis that's been going on for far too long
0: uh and, and absolutely and again um you know people have a right to demonstrate and should be demonstrating and should be uh, uh voicing their concern over the death of george floyd uh but as you mentioned we've got two crises here one being the social crisis one being the pandemic uh what does this do to the mental health of those involved it just seems that day after day after day ahmad it gets worse and worse and worse What what thoughts do you have for for people who are listening
4: This is a big concern of mine and many of my colleagues is that the mental health of people are already fragile given the current context of COVID-19. The people being asked to stay at home, social isolation uh, and social supports are very minimal at this this moment because we're not interacting with our friends or peer support. So uh, I guess, yes, there is a massive concern here. Me as a professor who teaches the course, I noticed this week that my own students, Scott, were... Uh, struggling and they needed. They don't have the universities mm. anymore to go to where they used it as a social support. So I made sure to add, allocate time for that. So what I'm trying to say here is for anybody who's listening to this broadcast right now, who's in a, in a position of power, whether you're a professor or a manager of a local business, please find the, the space in you to talk to your employees about how to support them during this difficult time, because people's mental health state is, a, is very fragile at this moment.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert, uh, talking about uh, today's stats and then, obviously, the challenges of having a pandemic during social unrest. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Pleasure speaking to you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The uh, premier at his daily press conference earlier on this afternoon talked about uh, how and we've seen this as COVID-19 has pushed us to work from home, uh, taxing Internet systems, uh, taxing the broadband systems of uh, our neighborhoods and such. And specifically rurally, how do we get the kids learning if there is no Internet access or very weak or, or spotty Internet access uh, in rural Ontario? Let's bring in Derek Sardo. Or sorry, before we get to Derek and the Huawei thing, I want to play a couple of clips. This is what the, uh, the premier had to say in regard to extending the Internet into rural
1: areas.
3: Staying connected over the Internet has never been more important to workers, students, families and friends. Internet connection is the difference between carrying on with our daily lives or not. Reliable, high-speed
1: Internet is no longer a luxury. It's an absolutely essential part of our life.
0: And with that, both TELUS and Bell have announced, and and, and you remember this is the ongoing discussion uh, that we really haven't got an answer to, and that is if if Huawei will participate in Canada's, the expansion of Canada's 5G network, Uh, we've been waiting for government to make a call on that, uh, and it would seem pretty obvious now that the answer should be no. But now both TELUS and Bell have said no to letting Huawei into their 5G network. Uh, They are proceeding with Ericsson and Nokia for their services. This comes with Huawei facing pushback on privacy concerns from other countries including the united states and the five eyes and such uh so how odd that the private industry is jumping in before government does let's bring in derek sardo president of rolling thunder thunder thunder.ca to find out more he's with us now derek thank you for the time hope you're doing well
1: i am doing well and yourself
0: uh so far so good we're at home we're uh we're all fired up and i haven't had to call you yet so that's good
1: well that's good uh (laughs) and we're busy because the whole internet work at home thing is it's very important to people, and uh, so we're moving servers and phone systems and everything to the cloud. If it wasn't all there before, it's certainly getting there now.
0: Yeah, you guys must be incredibly busy. So, your thoughts on uh, obviously we've talked about 5G before. I believe you disagree. You agree that they should not be fi- uh, Huawei should not be allowed into our 5G network. How surprised are you? And maybe you can add some light to this. Why Telus and Bell have announced this before the government has.
1: Well, I think that, uh, they run the risk of, uh, their partners. And so they partner both of those companies. Well, all three of our biggies uh, partner with the states, right? So mm-hmm. there are contracts that are, get awarded on how we deal with phone calls and internet while people are, let's say it's T-Mobile or uh, Verizon or, you know, they're, 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 they're concerned about those contracts. And I believe what will happen is if that, um, uh if that happens, then they would not get the contract, so, because the states are totally against uh, Huawei. And, and so what, what will happen is they'll say, ah, you're not going to get these contracts. So I think that's the number one reason they did, did it. The second reason, of course, is, uh, yeah, the Chinese government owns this, and we don't know what's happening from a control perspective.
0: So, are you? Do you think the government was in on this decision? Why would they jump ahead of the government on this? I mean, obviously, it's in their best well, interest. Well, was this I, ever I an that, issue for government?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you'll see the government follow suit. I'm sure and and put some some stringent things in place to say that we we don't want to use Huawei if we can help it. Um, uh, again, it's really it's really the country that a piece of the country owns. It China owns this thing, so. We, we don't want that, and private industry makes sense. And uh, our neighbors to the north to the south, they want this. So uh, it's good for everybody, I think.
0: Does this get the government, a uh, prime minister, off the hook from saying, you know, no, we don't want it? Because now he can say, well, gee, none of our companies are interested in this.
1: Well, yes. I, I mean, it uh, private industry usually doesn't work like that, but they're pushing the government, I think. So, yes. Uh, that'll that'll be uh, you'll see the government fall suit. Uh,
0: how difficult a decision was this for these groups? Why would they not have made this decision earlier then? if it's obvious?
1: Well, it's not obvious. I mean it's dollars and cents, but I, yeah. I ultimately think that when they looked at uh, using Huawei and potentially losing contracts to the states um, that it was a no-brainer at that point.
0: Your thoughts on uh, the government pledging more money to update uh, infrastructure so we can get more of what we're all experiencing here in uh, the GTHA out into rural areas?
1: Isn't that fantastic, really, when we think about about it? I mean, it took a a pandemic to sort of change that, Um, but our infrastructure lacks in these rural areas. So if there's dollars now to be pushed towards that, then, then it's a win-win for, for the for the province and for the country. What's
0: your take here, Derek? Uh, you know, we always talk about how uh, technology far uh, uh, surpasses uh, society, certainly laws. I mean, by the time laws are, uh, are constructed, they're usually out of date. Uh, but now, as you mentioned, the COVID pandemic has forced uh, society to catch up with technology. A lot of this stuff that we're doing now, it's been around for an awful long time, hasn't it?
1: Well, you know, you, you and I have known each other for a long, long time, but, uh, you know, I've been talking about cloud for about 20 years. It's mm-hmm. finally at the point where everyone has had to adapt to the cloud. And I, and I knew this was coming a long time ago. Um, again, it took a, a pandemic to push a lot of companies. Most of the companies that I deal with are, are on the cloud or fully on the cloud companies that have hold, held back now are in in dire straits because they can't be flexible uh, like these other companies. For instance, uh, routing of phone calls and and, and their data structures. So data structures that were in the cloud, no problem. Somebody goes home, you still have access to it. Data structures that were on local premise um, in their businesses, um, they needed to add add things to that. So we've moved a lot of uh, clients to the cloud over this uh, pandemic, for sure.
0: Derek Sardo has been with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca, to find out more. Derek, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, man. Take care. As uh, we were just mentioning when talking with Derek Sardo, Bell and Telus, have decided to uh expand the discussion on Huawei without Huawei uh the 5G discussion that is and this seems to be ahead of what the uh the federal government has done uh, obviously been questioning whether to allow fa- uh, Huawei into the 5G network now these two companies have said no we're not interested let's bring in Tim uh, Tim Powers political commentator managing director at Abacus Data and vice chairman of Summa Strategies he is with us now Tim thank you for the time hope you're well I'm all right, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good. Your thoughts on this? Um, we were waiting for the Prime Minister to make a, uh, a a call on Huawei and 5G. Now it seems that uh, Bell and Telus have jumped out ahead. Uh, the tech expert we just had on suggested that they've got, uh, obviously, contracts and, and business with U.S. companies, and that's the reason they've jumped the gun and are doing this. Does this mean the government is, is right behind them?
5: Uh, look, I'm sure the government would love to see the phone companies lead the way uh, or telephone companies or whatever they're now called, communications companies lead the way and do it uh, without them having to do it, uh, showing that uh, it's not uh, not a loss to Canadian consumers, right? Huawei is making a consumer argument. Canada is making a safety and security argument. There's another element to this too, Scott. Don't forget in this last election campaign, Uh, which seems so long ago now, but it was under a year ago, there was a big debate about, oh, you know, we've got to make wireless cheaper for everybody, and uh, the the phone companies may be looking for something in return when this is all said and done by not going with Huawei. So there's all sorts of politics, I suspect, at play here.
0: Would the government be involved in this decision? Would they have known about this? Because, as you mentioned, this does now make it easier for them in that respect.
5: Um, yeah, I don't know if they'd be directly involved. I'm sure they would have been briefed. I'm sure uh, I know both those companies. I've, I worked with Bell a long time ago uh, in a consulting capacity, and I know people who do strategic work for Telus. I'd be very surprised if the government wasn't aware what uh, the two companies were going to do in terms of uh, procuring hardware and, and using Ericsson over Huawei.
0: Why didn't this discussion go in this direction before, uh, rather than waiting for the federal government to make a decision?
5: Well, uh, who knows, right? Um, I think uh, part of what the federal government was signaling to phone companies without directly uh, saying it was, this is going to be a tough one, so maybe uh, you do us a solid and and go forward and, and procure something else. So. Um, never underestimate the power of uh, preventative messaging as opposed to declarative uh, directions, which is Hmm. what so far seemingly happened. The interesting player will be Rogers, because if my memory is correct, I think Rogers um, would have or could have a bigger Huawei footprint. Um, And, of course, Rogers are... A significant uh, business entity in, in this country. So I'm sure they'll be watching this carefully.
0: Can PM, can the Prime Minister now say, well, you know, the big companies don't want it. What can we do? They're not interested.
5: Well, it's easier for you know if the companies make the choice. It's harder for China to get mad at him, right? Uh, particularly if the choice is made before he says anything. So mm-hmm. uh, that's all part of the bigger um, chessboard of, of diplomatic maneuvers. He needs to be conscious of at the moment, um, you know. Uh, and I don't know if there's going to be a consumer push for Huawei. I mean, where where I think the Huawei and then the Chinese government. And others would be smart, and they've tried to do this before, is to insert the, you know, the actual commercial value of their product versus another product. I mean, Donut, you know, Hawaii was very skillful in trying to brand themselves in the Canadian consciousness well, with all the advertising, board advertising, and everything else. They were buying for various hockey broadcasts. You remember hockey? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what that existed before COVID nineteen. <laughs>
0: So how is China going to view this? That it's it's industry making the decision, not government.
5: Oh, I'm you know I'm sure China will resist if, if, if those companies, Talis and Bell, have you know international partners. I'm sure they'll feel a little bit of the pushback from the Chinese government if they have interest in, in chinese territory i think as we've seen the chinese can be pretty bare knuckled when it comes to wanting to advance their interest and people not appealing uh being supportive of all of that the other thing too is i don't know if your tech expert said this yes there's u.s contracts but a lot of these guys tell bell rogers all uh, i mean guys in reference to the company is lots of top female executives there too, Mm -hmm. obviously do a lot of work with the Canadian federal government. So if they're looking at contracts within the Canadian federal government, they're going to want to make sure that, you know, they can uh, live up to their covenants that um, security in their devices uh, is, uh, is, is sound and not a threat to, uh, to national security.
0: Is that it? Is this decision made now it's over?
5: Well, I think Rogers is the interesting one to watch, right? Like, so if if Rogers Bell and tell us the three biggest uh telephone companies in the country decide to go uh with uh, ericsson instead of Huawei or some other provider then yeah it's done canada doesn't really have to do, the federal government doesn't have to do much after that
0: all right tim can't let you go without asking you about the 20 seconds of silence uh what do we make of this um, are we making more of the story than the silence itself, or does this just, once again, confuse the message?
5: I I don't know. Um, look, I, I think it was deliberate. Uh, I, I think, again, that's a tightrope for the prime minister to dance because of the borders, but... Um, you can criticize him for a lot of things, but he's never usually short to get words out of his mouth. Um so I I, I think yeah, I, I think that was deliberate. Uh and I think uh I, I think it was a pretty clear message without uh saying uh the, the unsaid words were a potent message in and of themselves. The challenge is if, if, as I suspect it will, the, the, the Floyd story and the racial division and, and everything we're seeing out of the U.S., which we have to deal with here too in Canada, continues and Trump continues to inflame things in the U.S., it's going to be harder for the prime minister now just to be entirely silent
0: uh is the message clear though i mean whether you like it or not whether it's positive or negative is it clear because it seems the rest of the country the rest of the world now is trying to figure out and they're each choosing which angle they want to take
5: uh yeah i, I think it signals disapproval uh and and but i think you also at some point have to be a bit more courageous, uh, but I, I get why Canada is being cautious at the moment, and the Prime Minister's yeah. got to pick his battles here, right? So, who knows?
0: Uh, as we move forward uh, with this pandemic, with the social unrest that is going on, what message should the Prime Minister be delivering here?
5: Well, he's got to be careful because i mean he's a bit of a mixed record on this because of blackface during the election campaign we all all know that and he that he's atoned for all of that and uh uh he's certainly not the only person i suspect who's ever done anything wrong there but he can be called out for being hypocritical and he has to be careful of being you know empty rhetoric um which is a a challenge for this prime minister sometimes his heart may be in the right place and his value projection may be in the right place, but often, as we've seen with the Indigenous agenda, um, infl- uh, expectations get inflated, but delivery doesn't happen. So it's it's a tough, tough balance when you're somebody like Justin Trudeau, who likes to project hope, but often, uh, at least again on the Indigenous front, hasn't brought in the measures that the people who believed he would bring in uh, have seen yet.
0: Tim Powers has been with us, political commentator, managing director at Abacus Data, and vice chairman of SUMA Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated.
5: Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Bye.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Obviously, in the uh, wake of COVID-19 and certainly the uh, destruction that this uh, virus has done through uh, long-term care facilities and seniors homes and such uh, not only in, in the province but in the country uh, many are questioning what we should do next and how we in fact improve the conditions in these homes and finally set down a uh, series of rules and regulations other than just guidelines uh, for everybody to follow and what kind of what kind of form what kind of platform does that take Uh, And should the federal government be involved? Should the federal government provide aid for long-term care homes? To talk uh, more about all of this, Jane Medes is with us, barrister and solicitor, Institutional Advocate, Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and is with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: Obviously, uh, health care is a uh, a provincial jurisdiction, as are these homes at this point. How much input should the federal uh, federal government have? what uh, What has this uh, pandemic exposed that the feds can help?
6: Well, I think there's a, a couple of things. Certainly, we need a national strategy on aging um, to change the perception of aging and how we you know look at the elderly and how we want to treat them. Uh, with respect to sort of the health care portion, um, long-term care and, and that sort of care is not included under the Canada Health Act. And so what, you know, we would like is to certainly see that added into the Canada Health Act so that it is a mandatory part of our health care system. And it would also then give some um, ability for the uh, government to, you know, um, certainly give money as well as potentially... Some kind of oversight on you know how that money is used so sort of put some restrictions on it so uh, it could be helpful obviously that there's different um uh long-term care across the uh, across the country each province uh, does long-term care a little bit differently and it, it might clarify that as well as to what exactly what you know people are entitled to how much care and that sort of thing
0: with and many have said the situation is different from you know from province to province. How much can the feds lay out in lay out in a sense of guidelines and such that will apply to all, or does this just get us into the weeds where uh, certain situations will be different for certain provinces?
6: Well, I think it's going to be you know different provinces will do it differently because there's just you know we have, it's a big country with very different. Uh, kinds of populations and the way that the populations are set out, whether it's rural and urban and all that. But it certainly would allow money to flow, um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest parts because I think one of what, the one thing that we do know is that uh, long-term care across the country has been chronically underfunded and that the provinces can't seem to do it alone. So if we're going to have proper funding and proper care, we do need uh, help from the feds.
0: Uh, is that one of the reasons that the federal government is reluctant? Because once they put their name on it, then they have to contribute to it.
6: I think so. I think that's certainly part of it, um, you know, that they, you know, this is not part of our Canada Health Act. And so different provinces have different, um, uh, you know, uh, qualifications to get in long term care and all of that sort of thing. So I think it could broaden it um, across Canada. And, you know, they you know, obviously, you know, m- money is always the issue. And when we come to these things, unfortunately,
0: uh, we do it with other forms of health care. Why not this?
6: Well, that's exactly it. And that's, I mean, that's the thing is that it should be included. Um, up until, you know, the 60s or 70s, there really wasn't long-term care at all, um, you know, publicly funded. And it, it really has sort of come along slowly. And the way it's funded is very different in each province. And, you know, the costs and what people pay is very different. Um, you know, we're actually quite are lucky in Ontario and other provinces, they do asset testing. So, you know, you have to sell your home and use that before you pay, you know, before you could get any assistance. So, you know, I think it would would at least regularize that, I would hope, across Canada.
0: Will it be impossible to get something like this done? We're talking about it now. Will we still be talking about it two years from now?
6: Well, I think that, you know, um, you never know because we never know what's going to come in the future. But I think with the uh baby boomers coming through and with this disaster that we've had in long-term care i think that there will be a continued push to have long-term care included in the Canada Health Act and to get uh, you know the provincial governments to ensure that there's safe long-term care uh, f- available for everyone and not just uh sort of the lucky few who can get in uh to homes that can provide the you know the right level of care Uh, We definitely need more money in long-term care, that's the number one thing, and we need to rebuild in Ontario those homes that are substandard.
0: Will this change the discussion around health care altogether as this is incorporated? I mean, because we obviously know there's always funding issues there, there has been forever it seems.
6: Well, I'm I'm really hoping so, and, and I'm really hoping that one of the things that comes out of this is that we become proactive. Part of the problem is that we're very reactive, so we, we wait till someone requires long-term care before the money flows. So getting home care can be difficult. Um, you know, even when to get home care, you usually have to have something happen to you. So we really need a lot more preventative care, keep people in the community. The last thing we really want to do is send anyone to long-term care. So the more people we can keep home and safe in their community, the better off we will be, and it's actually cheaper for the system, and it's better for the individuals.
0: Uh, here we are in the middle of week number 12 of this pandemic. Uh, are you seeing change? Are you seeing things move differently in a different direction?
6: Well, I mean, right now it's all just putting fires out, right? Reaction, um, yeah. And it's all reactive. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think the one thing that I would say that's positive is that we it has shone a light to say, hey, we really aren't doing well in long-term care. We really did focus on the wrong thing at the beginning. We looked at hospitals um, and we didn't look at long-term care, and the result has been, you know, getting upwards towards 2,000 deaths in, in long-term care. And, uh, you know, that's just a horrendous, horrendous situation. Because, And it wasn't that it wasn't um, foreseeable. It absolutely was. But as usual, all of the, in, you know, all of the attention was on the hospitals, and I'm really hoping that that will change in the future. We really need to look at the elderly population because they are the ones that use a lot of the health care dollars and let's use it in a positive way uh, to keep them s- safe and healthy as opposed to requiring them to go to hospital or long-term care
0: and there has to be an efficient way to interweave these two services because again we hear so much about those that should be in long-term care that are actually taking up hospital beds so i mean the correlation is natural is it not
6: mm-hmm. yeah and i mean that you, that's absolutely the problem is that you know we're hearing all about people you know, prior to COVID, I spent most of my time dealing with people who were in hospital who needed long-term care and the issues around that. Um, and it really was the wrong place. It really was. Let's have, couldn't we have prevented them from going into hospital or provide them with the right care so that they could go home? And there is has been such a perception that you know the elderly, well, they're going to die anyway. We shouldn't give them. You know, if they have dementia, they shouldn't get. Um, rehab even though they can physically do it oh it's too much trouble you know if you're going to long-term care you can't have rehab and so there was all these restrictions that really were both illegal and nonsensical and that we could have really um, prevented a lot of people i think from staying in hospital or going to long-term care if we put um, a lot more thought um, and attention to preventing some of these things beforehand
0: is this going to take an incredibly long time to fix
6: I think some of it's going to take a long time to fix. I mean, there's going to be some redevelopment uh, that's required. Um, you know, part of the problem that we have certainly is that we need more people in long-term uh, working in the sector. Um, and we just don't have enough staff. So the question is, where do you get that staff from? Trained staff, nurses, um, personal support workers. And so it's going to take some time to either homegrown them or or you know, um, allow immigrants to come in the country that are going to be able to uh, provide that care because we just don't have enough nurses and PSWs um, at the moment in Canada.
0: Uh, Quebec is uh, on a a, uh, mission to get as many as 10,000 trained and up and running by uh, September. Is this the sort of program we need?
6: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it might be. uh, Certainly the personal support workers. Um, it's a much shorter time and and there's certainly the hands uh, people that are doing the hands on work and that would definitely be something that could be doable if people were willing to do that. Unfortunately, the problem is that it's um, very difficult work and you know you know without the pandemic pay it's often very poorly paid, even with pandemic pay you're really not making a lot of money. so the question is is that you know can they make it an attractive um, Uh, type of employment that people will want to
0: do. Jane Medes has been with us, Barrister and Solicitor, Institutional advocate, Advocacy Center for the Elderly, talking about the federal government and its role in long-term care and should that be advanced. Jane, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck.
6: Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me again. All right. Uh, We've talked about what life will be like post-COVID-19 many times. Some are even suggesting that we could see a four-day work week. Is this even plausible in our society? New Zealand is pursuing this as a potential possibility. Should we too? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm, I'm great. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, at first glance, a four day work week sounds great. Is it worth it? Can we do this?
7: <laughs> well, you'll find a story today from the Fraser Institute uh, mm-hmm. the Fraser Institute, a wonderful think tank who thinks these deep thoughts. And this is what they said, If over the next ten years, over the next ten years, we're not ready for it today, we could each improve our productivity by about two percent, then in ten years' time, we could talk about a four day work week couple of problems with this. Uh, Clearly, the man who had these deep thoughts is not an hourly worker. So I could could let you work 32 hours a week today or, or whatever it is, 28 hours a week today if you don't mind being paid by hours. But most hourly workers want to get as many hours as they possibly can because, you know, at $15 an hour, $14 an hour, that's how they make a living. And then in terms of personal productivity, uh Scott can I ask you a personal question? How can sure. you become 2% more productive each year for the next 10 years?
0: You know that was a question I have written down to ask you Marvin. I agree. What is the answer to that?
7: Well the answer is you can't become more productive in that period of time. You, the radio station isn't going to say that the Scott Thompson show is we've covered so much in just 4 days we don't need the 5th day. We'll just go <laughs> yeah. dead on the last day. It's not possible. At the university um, my employer could say tomorrow they're going to pay me for thirty hours or thirty two hours snap a finger but it actually doesn't change anything when i'm salaried i still have to get through a certain volume of work and anyone who's a salaried worker listening to us knows that if you don't get it done in whatever the allotted time is you take it home at night you'd stop in on the weekend and do it that way so i i get the concept i understand what they're talking about if we could all You know, work a little bit less, think of how much more employment it's going to cause. But the last stickler to all of this, of course, is that nobody wants to give up pay. So we'd all Mm. be happy to work one day less a week as long as we're paid the same amount as we were before. And clearly, you know, no, no employer is in the mood to do that at this time.
0: I remember having or reading something in the 1980s about this and saying that, with you know, what technology will be in the next 20 years, we will only be working a four-day work week yeah. uh, because technology will eliminate that need for that extra day. However, we all know what's happened. That person has just been fired, and the person that used to do one job now does two. So why wouldn't the same apply here?
7: Yeah, so a couple of things with that. Those wonderful stories... Uh Missed something very important, and that is volumes of information. So, while we do have smart tellers and we have smart checkouts, we have things, suddenly you have to do something with all that data. So, the data needs to be processed. We haven't seen it that way. And then we have seen a loss of certain kinds of jobs, jobs that don't tend to add the most value. So, there's been a shift in our economy. Um, the problem there, again, is that the, the new jobs, say jobs in education and in healthcare, information processing, uh, there's just a different kind of employment uh, so yes if you're an hourly worker and you were laid off at stelco at age fifty three there isn't a job for you to transition into unless you get a lot more education but people coming out of university they're ready to fill those jobs. It's just not as simple as economists make it seem. That we could suddenly all go to a four-day work week.
0: Uh, in that study that you're referring to from the Fraser Institute, that you know they refer to in the old days, we all used to work seven days a week, and then it was down to six days a week, and then we got to five days a week. So if we've done that, why not four? Is it that easy?
7: Yeah. So here's another. What's the difference problem. between
0: What's the difference between five and four? <laughs>
7: Well, here's another interesting problem for you. Um, you work four days a week. What four days a week are you working? Yeah. Are you working Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday? Is Wednesday your bonus day off? Well, most people say, no, 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 Marvin. you don't understand. I want to work Monday to Thursday, and the weekend goes Friday to Sunday. Mm. Well, good for you, but if I'm the bank, who's going to serve me on Friday? Or, or banks just going to be open four days a week? Uh, By the way, when you have Friday off, do you want to go shopping? Oh, you can't because the stores are closed on Friday. Hmm. So we still need people to deliver service 7 by 24. That's kind of the way we live. Uh, And are you prepared to have your bonus day off be in the middle of the week or maybe you work Monday, then Tuesday's off. You work Wednesday through Friday. Again, these are the operational or executional details that are more problematic. I would think the easier way to think about this is that you'd still work Monday to Friday, but where once upon a time it was from 8 until, say, 6. Now it's 9 until 4.30. Maybe in the future you start at 10 and you knock off at 3. But I think the way we are, we still need a lot of work done every single day of the week.
0: So is this just a great talking point or will this happen? It reminds me of the discussion of whether we should get rid of Daylight Savings Time or not. We talk about (laughs) it a lot, but nothing ever gets done.
7: Well, I think it is a great thing to talk about at this point. And and I'm sure businesses, look, there is some seriousness behind all this. Businesses, having gone through COVID-19, trying to find their way out the other side, I think are more willing to try some new things. I just don't think those new things are around the hours of work. I do think they might involve technology. As you know, at the university, we have decided this fall, all of our Mm -hmm. courses are going to be online. If we're going to do a seminar, it's going to be online. And then what does that lead us to? So if we're going to deliver this material online, where does that get us to? What might be the future of the buildings on campus? Maybe we don't need as many buildings. So as we embrace some technology solutions as part of the recovery, there will be changes to our life, whether they are big, like going to a four-day work week, or maybe it'll be more flex time, working sometimes at home, sometimes at work, or or what have you. I'm not sure at this point, but certainly business is prepared to embrace these technology solutions like they never have before.
0: So is this more likely to happen in a post-COVID-19 world?
7: You know, again, the problem with that, my answer to that is I don't know exactly what post COVID 19 or when that's going to happen. You know, is this a one wave thing like SARS? We eventually get to the other side of this and COVID just disappears. Do we have to learn to live with this? Do we need a vaccine? Will we have a vaccine? To me, at this moment, there are too many variables in play for my crystal ball to tell you what a post COVID world looks like. But I just know that as businesses were forced to adapt, very quickly to changing conditions, uh, in particular, the idea of social distancing and working from home, a lot of them have said, well, you know, this experiment didn't work as bad as I thought it was. I wonder what I can take from this and, and take forward going uh, in, the, in the post-COVID-19 world. So I, I, I think there'll be, but I don't know if they're big changes or just uh, little changes. And that's my, my problem with my crystal ball.
0: Marvin Ryder's been with his business professor at the group school of business, McMaster University, a four-day work week. Is it a possibility? Raises the eyebrows, doesn't it? Marvin, thank you for the time, much appreciated, and be well. I will. Thank you. Tony's on the line. Tony, what are your thoughts on the four-day work week? I'm in. Are you?
3: I uh, remember. I'm I'm an old boy, and I remember when uh, my brothers used to be working uh, for Eaton's. Uh, they used to work four-and-a-half-day weeks, uh, half a day on Wednesday and had uh, Saturday-Sunday off. So, so that, you're all for it. Well, well why not? I remember, uh, like, I worked at the steel plants. I remember, like, you do 12-hour shifts. I right. remember what uh, uh, guys telling me at the, after the war that the companies were uh, putting the, uh, working the guys six days a week, 12 hours a day, 72 hours. You only had Sunday off, so you could go to church. Yeah. And, and give yep. you money uh, tied to the church, but uh, when the guys come back from uh, Europe, they said, "Hey, no, 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 no! Europe is only doing a forty-hour week, and they got benefits." So yeah. th- they fought the companies tooth and nail to get a forty-hour week. Now, with what you've got now, uh, what's wrong with the 40 uh, week? You can go. Uh, I've, I've seen me. Where you work uh, your twelve-hour shifts, but you have to yeah, but
0: this uh, this isn't necessarily about taking your forty-hour week and spreading it over four days instead of five. This is actually losing the day, and are you willing to give up the money for that? That's when the discussion gets different.
3: Well, I remember when Sunday was a closed day, and you couldn't get anything done. You know. All right,
0: you, Tony. You, thanks for the call. We're going to try to squeeze Randy in here. Randy, what are your thoughts on the four-day week?
3: Hey, uh,
1: Scott, how are you doing? Good, you? I just retired after 37 years, and I, I worked uh, four days a week uh, my whole life, and in the wintertime, we switched over to a, a three-day week, but we worked, worked three 12s, Monday to yeah. Wednesday, and then the other, another shift came in and worked uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and because we were guaranteed 38 hours a week, and we were only working 36, every, uh, every six, Sunday, you had to go in and make a work a makeup day, but that evened right. out to 38 hours a week. It worked. Yeah, great. make
0: makes sense. There's a lot of a lot of flexible ways to do it. I'm all for that. All right. Thanks, Randy.
1: Okay. Nice. Thanks, Scott.